When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Thank you for listening to Failed State Update, the podcast. This is your host, Joseph L. Flatley. Before we get started, I wanted to uh, let you all know that there is a Failed State Update newsletter now. Get the news of the weird sent directly to your email inbox. It's free, uh, free to the people. Although, you know, at some point I'm definitely going to add a paid tier so I can start raking in those big internet bucks. But that's in the future. And here in the present, I want all of you to subscribe to my email newsletter. You can find it on the web at lennyflatley.substack.com. That's lennyflatley.substack.com. We're going to begin with uh, Anne Orchier, who is an organizer with No Olympics LA. Uh, That's a campaign to do exactly what it sounds like kick the Olympics out of Los Angeles because although it seems like a wonderful uh, life-affirming benevolent organization the truth is the way the IOC operates and the way it affects these cities that it moves into every four years is uh, problematic to say the least My name's Anne, and I am an organizer with No Olympics LA, which is uh, a coalition of, uh, I think, around 30 groups now, um, mostly based in Los Angeles, but also extending through the state. And then we're also part of a larger transnational network of groups fighting to stop uh, the Olympics from coming into our cities and uh, destroying them. Um, and exacerbating all of the issues that we're currently fighting 
um, which are, you know, we see as global issues, particularly around displacement, um, police militarization, environmental destruction, uh, and erosion of democracy. I think people's minds are going to be pretty blown when they find out you're anti-Olympics. <laughs> For sure. I think, um, you know, one of the things that we typically point out or, or that I think is important to understand, and this also gets to the the part of one of the most common questions people ask us, which is, you know, well, how can we fix this or change it? And the unfortunate answer is we can't. Uh, and a lot of that is because of how the Olympics are structured. The Olympics are run by a group called the International Olympic Committee or IOC. They are based in Lausanne, Switzerland, which is a um, folks who are familiar with 20th century history may know as a, a tax haven and place where basically, um, you know, it's, it's a little bit of a, a, a neutral zone um, for a variety of um, activities that basically to like evade a lot of international law. And that's also where FIFA is based. And about 10% of the IOC, there's a representative from, you know, each country. Um, most of them are, or not most of them, but uh, a significant percentage of them are royalty. So it's not, you know, it's not like a lottery or like average citizen. I, I was doing an interview with someone the other day who was talking about, you know, the IOC's attempts at reform and I was asking if, you know, I was like, do you think that there would, would ever be or could ever be like a renter on the IOC, someone who doesn't not only not just like a because right now the people on the IOC, it's not just homeowners versus renters. It's like sheiks and the crown prince of Denmark um, on the IOC. And oh, Henry Kissinger is a member of the IOC. Um, it's it's a lot of very powerful evil people essentially, is who's running the show. And there's no accountability. Host cities sign a contract with the IOC that essentially puts us on the hook for, for everything. Um, and, and that's not to say that the leaders of our cities who go into these contracts, who sign these contracts, are getting duped by the IOC. They're going into it because they stand to make a lot of money and, uh, and gain even more power. So, Essentially, the Olympics function as a, a vehicle for the already most wealthy and powerful people in the world to, to you know, to take more wealth and power uh, and to d dispossess and disenfranchise folks who are, are already struggling. Um, so it's basically it's a land grab. Could you go into that a little bit? Like, you know, help me understand how that works practically. Yeah. So, uh, so, you know, looking at what's happened in past cities, it's, you know, the Olympics, because they, they set a sort of an event, um, and timeline for, for when this mega event is going to happen, they allow, you know, the, the ruling class within a city. Um, so in the case of Los Angeles and which, you know, is the case for most global cities are real estate developers, politicians, um, and, and anyone, you know, in control, or uh, you know, with a controlling like financial interest, um, it gives them this sort of timeline to remake cities and to, to cleanse cities. 
there's a really interesting provision in most host city contracts called the the clean city provision, uh, which is nominally about protecting corporate sponsors. It's about, uh, you know, allowing corporate sponsors like monopoly over sales and, and, um, advertisements in the city so that you couldn't like, for example, if Pepsi is the official sponsor, of you know, soda of the Olympics, like Coke can't advertise. Um, and it also allows the IOC to maintain a really intense stronghold over Olympic branding. So anything that, you know, they basically control what what gets sold. But in practice, cities also extend it to anything, you know, when they say clean city, it means anything that could uh, could impede corporate sponsors' ability to sell their goods, which in practice means uh, visible poverty, uh, particularly homelessness, and then also political dissent. Um, so those are the types of cities that we're talking about. We're, city, we're talking about creating cities that are clean canvases for real estate speculators, for wealthy tourists, um, that push out people who are quote unquote, you know, undesirable, who, who are sort of a blight on that image. Um, and then the other sort of aspect of this too is, you know, if you think about the, uh, you know, like the state of exception, right? Like the, um, looking at something like, you know, the Patriot Act or the, or, you know, the kind of like shock doctrine, you know, Naomi Klein, Giorgio Gombin school of, of politics, which, you know, I, I personally adhere to, um, where in the event of a, a crisis, right. Um, that's an opportunity for the, the ruling class to reshape and normalize, you know, what, what is the new normal? I think that's something we're all sort of looking at, or I should say, I mean, folks on the left and folks who are organizing, particularly around policing and surveillance are are talking about and thinking about now in terms of the pandemic. Anytime there's an event like this, that is a, an opportunity to sort of redefine what is normal in terms of, uh, you know, state violence and control. And the Olympics present a similar opportunity as well. It's sort of, you know, it's a state of exception, but around celebration instead of crisis, this idea of, you know, we're preparing for this huge party and this huge event. And because of that, uh, folks in, you know, the folks who are nominally in charge of our city can kind of skirt around all of these things that normally people might raise their eyebrows at, uh, you know, there's the like social normalization level. And then there's also like an actual, you know, it creates a lot of legal loopholes. So like two big examples, I would say in in California, we have this, uh, you know, admittedly like very goofy, imperfect statewide law called CEQA, which is like the the law um, that, you know, governs environmental reviews for new developments and, you know, new structures and buildings. There's an exemption in CEQA for anything related to the Olympics. So, you know, that's, and, and we've seen like from talking to other folks in Seoul, basically what developers in Korea did is around the Olympics, they were able to say like, because we have this timeline that we need to meet, we can't afford to go through the normal environmental reviews and processes. And that sort of got passed through. But of course that then that doesn't go away after the Olympics. Now that's just the the standard. Um, and similarly, you know, surveillance in Tokyo, we were there last summer and something that we were seeing and hearing from folks is they started rolling out all of these new surveillance metrics and kind of tagging them to the Olympics. Uh, and that's also, that's just practice to see what 
folks will accept, you know, things that people might sort of might normally kind of rankle at like, oh, we're going to start scanning your eyeballs every time you come into the subway. Uh, people are a little freaked out. But when if you tell them like, oh, it's in preparation for the Olympics, like we have to do it, it sort of shifts what the, the public perception is of that. You basically just painted this stark picture in five minutes of the Olympics as this kind of capitalist monster that's <laughs> going city to city and remaking it in its own image. Um, and I think if people haven't thought about this before, it's going to be kind of a some cognitive dissonance there. What year is the uh, LA Olympics supposed to be? 2028 okay. is when it's supposed to be. And we should note, too, that um, initially LA was bidding for 2024. So, you know, there's a couple of reasons to flag that. One is that... Um, you know, it's always funny, like when our mayor, Eric Garcetti, or the folks on the bid committee talk about the terminology is, is that a city wins the right to host, but technically LA didn't win. We came in second in a competition of two. Um, there were initially, I think five or six cities bidding for 2024, and then all of them dropped out except for Los Angeles and Paris. And the IOC got desperate and basically said, okay, one of you can have 2024 and the other one can have 2028. And there was this like insane mad dash to, to kind of get the, you know, to like get the ink on the paper and let the ink dry. It was, it was literally like an eight day turnaround, which is nuts. And they basically, they just crossed out 24 and wrote 28 on the contract. Um, and it's just a reminder to, it's like, they're making up the rules as they go along. So this idea of it's set, you know, thinking about, especially right now, you know, the idea that, of planning anything that far in advance and making a deal for anything that far in advance. It's like, I wouldn't make a deal for anything six months from now, let alone um, eight years from now. Like, who the hell knows what's going to be happening? Um, but yeah, so 2028 is when they're theoretically supposed to be held, um, if the Olympics still even exist in 2028. Um, or, you know, and hopefully, even if they do, we can all, you know, kick them out in the cities where they're supposed to be held. But Something we started seeing immediately, like basically as soon as the ink dried on the bullshit contract that the mayor signed, um, you know, we the big thing was uh, hotel displacement, essentially, is that the city council members and the hotel developers, I should mention too, like half of our city council is under FBI investigation right now um, for bribery and, you know, basically like accepting money from real estate developers in exchange for certain favors and like tax breaks on projects. Um, and even like, even if those, the deals that they had made were tech, technically legal, they're just like, so insane and immoral. They've been giving away billions of dollars in tax breaks and incentives to hotel developers at a moment where we have this, you know, record uh, like homelessness crisis and our schools, our schools are being systematically defunded um, even before the pandemic. And then they just released the, you know, proposed new budget this month. And, um, you know, surprise, like everything got defunded except for the police, which got expanded. Um, but anyway, so, you know, so our, our city council uh, in the pocket of real estate developers and hotel developers in particular. And as soon as the Olympic bid got announced, they, they started um, pushing for hotel development in the name of the Olympics, basically saying, we're going to have a hotel shortage crisis in 10 years if we don't build more hotels. 
which is not to meant, you know, they've built so like hotel construction and the number of hotel rooms has basically doubled in the last 10 years. Um, which, so it's insane to suggest that that, you know, that's the last thing that Los Angeles needs to begin with, but they sort of started planting this narrative or they were attempting to plant this narrative that we're going to run out of hotel rooms for the Olympics. And there's a state law in California called the Ellis Act, um, which it, it has a few elements to it and I won't get into all of them, but the important one to note here is there's a provision. Part of what it does is it allows landlords to evict people in rent stabilized housing, um, which is the only form of housing in LA that poor people can afford essentially. Um, and it allows landlords and, and building owners to evict an entire, you know, evict tenants if they are converting it into a hotel. So that's already been a problem. And then with the Olympics coming up, we started seeing like, it, it honestly, it came up even faster than I was expecting. I sort of expected there to be like a beat before they started doing it, but it was like, sign the contract. And then like a month later, they were putting forward motions saying, okay, we need to, we need to demolish these eight buildings in order to build this massive hotel complex. We need to evict you know, the, there's one main one, like the first one in particular that I'm thinking of in South Central LA, where they evicted 32 families. And, and you said that um, uh, LA and Paris got picked for the next two because a bunch of cities dropped out. Mm-hmm. Can you explain why, how that would happen or why a city would drop out? Yeah. So basically, I mean, in the last few decades, like there have been pretty active and visible Olympic opposition movements in every city that has, uh, you know, that has bid with the exception of cities with like, with very intense, um, autocratic, you know, regimes, um, where, you know, protesting can, can get you killed. Um, and so, yeah, pretty much any city where you can protest and stay alive, there have been, uh, protests against the Olympics. And I mean, pretty simply Paris and Los Angeles were the only cities that didn't vote. And then what about um, uh, the experience of these cities, you know, past Olympics? Um, what does the city look like after the Olympics is done and moves on? Yeah, I think like the the important thing is whatever changes and things happen in the preparation stage, like those things stick. Mm-hmm. Um, I, the best kind of example or like anecdote um, I can I can think of uh, and this covers a number of different categories but like for example um london and the preparation for their games uh they were already you know the most surveilled city uh military like police militarization and surveillance ramped up so intensely in the lead up to the games and uh we have a um dave zyron who's an amazing sports journalist uh who you know we we speak to and work with a lot um, and who's one of the, you know, I think one of the few journalists who actually covers the intersection of sports and politics, uh, actively and, and very well. Um, he told us a story at one point about how he was talking to one of the the people, you know, working on security for the London games, who was describing some of these really intense and, and terrifying, um, new technologies that they were using. And he asked that question, like, well, what happens after the Olympics are done, you know, once, once the ostensible, you know, threat is, is over, 
um, what happens to all of this stuff. And the, the guy he was talking to just turned to him and was like, well, he's like, we're not putting it back in the box. Um, and so just remembering it's like, oh yeah, like anything, any changes, you know, like, so for example, like these hotels, this idea that, oh, we need to build these hotels for the Olympics. And it's like, well, embedded in that, it's not like they're going to tear the hotel down and move poor people back into the neighborhood. Once it's over, that neighborhood is permanently changed. That neighborhood is a destination for wealthy tourists now. And the poor families are, are gone. They're out of LA. They're not, you know, at this point, LA is not affordable to the extent that if you get displaced from your home, like you're, you're gone, you're out of the city. The Olympics kind of form like a unique opportunity to see kind of the weird Orwellian like mm-hmm. like thing that's happening in all cities all over the world, you know, kind of like concentrated. Like I remember Dave Zirin um describing like in Olympic Village in Rio, like this was like like that the headquarters for the security was like in a big plexiglass box erased above, you know, it's like he was describing something out of nineteen eighty four and it was a really like stark image and um you know, I I just think it's important for people to start seeing these massively corporate funded ventures for what mm-hmm. they really are. Totally, totally. I think I mean, and you mentioned cognitive dissonance earlier. Uh, oh, actually, before I talk about that, I just want to note the Olympic Village is supposed to be in Westwood at UCLA, um, which parenthetically, Westwood is is the most unaffordable rental like market, you know, in terms of neighborhoods in the entirety of California. Um, I forget what the exact percentage is, but some insane percentage of UCLA students recently, it was like in the last year was announced are unhoused, like cannot like live in their cars, like do not have housing. Um, so the idea that they're going to take that neighborhood that is already so completely unaffordable to the extent that you know, that Westwood is the neighborhood where UCLA is, right? That most of the people who are like creating, you know, who are part of the social fabric of Westwood cannot afford to live there, but they're going to, you know, they're going to displace even more people to, to host athletes um, is nuts. Uh, but then the entire plan, the Olympic plan, it covers pretty much the entirety of LA County, as well as parts of um as well as parts of Ventura County and Orange County too. So the footprint of the Olympics, it's like kind of the entire, like a huge chunk of the Southern California region. It's not just the city of LA. Um, so when like thinking about land grabs, this is a huge, huge footprint. Um, but yeah, in terms of, yeah, getting back to like cognitive dissonance and what the Olympics reveal, I think one of the main things we're up against um, is this sense of like, at least on a cultural level, there's this sense of LA exceptionalism. Um, and I think connected to our larger political moment too, like, you know, this clinging to the idea of the, you know, resistance Democrats are going to save us. Um, because LA, you know, we have like, we have the vision of, I think what a lot of other places are, fighting for this idea, right. Of like, Oh, if we can just get more demo, like progressive Democrats into office, things are going to be okay. And it's like, I, and I, I get that psychologically, like it is hard. It's that I forget, I'm sure, you know, there's some like name or Freudian stage for it or other psychological stage for it. When you realize that your parents aren't uh, superheroes, um, that that's like a, you know, that's like a defined developmental stage. Um, 
but yeah, recognizing it's like, oh yeah, our, um, our progressive democratic mayor who identifies, you know, his like, he identifies as a Mexican, Jewish, Italian, you know, diversity hire. Um, his dad was the most powerful cop in LA for a long time. So, um, his dad is, uh, so Eric Garcetti is our mayor. His dad is Gil Garcetti, who is the DA who, uh, you know, the DA who presided over the OJ Simpson trial, um, and basically had to, his career ended after that. Um, but, yeah, just recognizing it's like, you know, Eric Garcetti loves to, he, he'll tweet, you know, not even honestly, in my opinion, really good, um, really good zingers at Donald Trump, these kind of like weak sauce zingers at Donald Trump. And people will be like, yeah, like he's our progressive champion. But then you look at the Olympic bid and it's like, well, with this bid, he's making a multi-billion deal with Donald Trump. Like he's sitting down, he's had more meetings with Donald Trump about the federal security plans for the Olympics than he has with immigrant rights leaders in Los Angeles. Um, you know, Donald Trump is the true partner of the, and that's their words, not mine of the, of the 2028 Olympic games. Um, right before the pandemic hit, Trump was in Los Angeles, have giving press conferences with the chair of the 28th bid, which is, you know, who's Eric Garcetti's like childhood friend and, and, you know, close colleague, uh, in the Department of Homeland Security talking about how they're going to use the 2028 Olympics to clean up Los Angeles in terms of illegal immigration and homelessness. Um, so it's like, yeah, what, how, what are the actual relationships? What are the power dynamics at play? It, it sort of throws a lot of that into light too. Yeah. And, and, you know, that's really where we are as a country right now. It's like, you can do whatever you want as long as you're like lobbing a few tweets at at the Trump administration now and then to like kind of remind people that you're on their side. They're not going to look at you very, they're not going to give you any like discriminating examination and you're going to be able to get away with whatever you want. Yeah. It reminds me, I have a friend who gave me, this was advice more on like an interpersonal and, and dating level, <laughs> you know, where she was like, put them on mute, right? Like, like just stop paying attention to what they're saying, like turn the volume off and like look at what they're doing. Right. And it was really helpful. And I feel like that's good advice politically too. It's like, yeah, don't look at what Eric Garcetti is tweeting. Look at what he's doing. And same like Nancy Pelosi, all that shit this week of like, Oh, she called Trump fat. Like, yes, queen. Um, and it's like, yeah, she called him fat and then she signed in the, like, you know, co-signed the biggest, like, handed over trillions of dollars to his military. Like, what? okay, like, um, I, and and with Eric Garcetti, you can even tell, too, it's like, he, he'll write these mean tweets and it's like, if you pay attention, Trump's not tweeting back at him because he knows that he's getting what he wants. Like, he's not, like, Eric Garcetti is handing over the LAPD and handing over the region through this Olympic bid. How has things changed or how do you see things changing um, with the Olympics uh, in light of this uh, COVID-19 pandemic? So first of all, the the Tokyo 2020 games were officially postponed. Um, and the conversations are already starting now about are those going to be canceled or postponed again? Um, and I think, again, people are seeing it's it's more clear 
the, you know, the IOC and the national organizing committee and the local organizing committee are just making so many unforced errors and like not trying to hide what their true interests are in terms of who they're protecting and what they're protecting when they make decisions. Um, they waited a really long time to announce the postponement. They were claiming basically up until the very last minute that they possibly could, that they were going, they were fully planning to hold the Olympics in July even when most of the world knew that that was impossible. So I think that started to like, again, those, those, um, those schisms start to form where people are like, what the hell, like what's going on? Like, who are these people? Um, it started to reveal what some of those power dynamics are. Like the fact that the IOC is fully running the show and they're the ones who make the decisions. And, and even if the, you know, once that contract is signed, it's very hard for, for cities to, to renegotiate anything. Um, and I think most people don't realize that. And, and this is putting that the nature of those relationships fully on display. Uh, I think it's sort of, you know, this is not a good feeling, but it has confirmed a lot of the hypotheticals that we had brought up a couple of years ago, um, that our mayor and the folks, you know, the, the press corps in our city, when we would bring up these hypotheticals, they would sort of, their answer was just like, well, that's not going to happen. Like, we continually brought up, particularly in LA, like the the prospect of huge natural disasters. Like how, how you know there are no provisions in this contract for if anything happens in LA. Like if we continue to have increasing massive wildfires, um, if there is a huge earthquake, like how, like what what is what happens to this contract? Basically, the way the contract is written, it suggests that the taxpayers of LA and California are just on the hook that we just owe the IOC millions, potentially billions of dollars. Um, and Garcetti and the LA times, like their answer was just sort of like, Oh, you guys are being paranoid. Like nothing like that is going to happen. Um, we didn't specifically bring up a global pandemic, but for me, like a global pandemic falls into that category of like unforeseen massive events that would, you know, interfere with our ability to host the games, quote unquote. Uh, and so, yeah, this what's happening right now, in particular, what's happening with Tokyo, I think demonstrates to people like, yeah, there is no plan B. Like, this is when you sign up to host the Olympics, you that becomes the priority for the city. And everything else falls by the wayside. Um, and it doesn't matter if, you know, people start dying off on mass, it doesn't matter if there's a, you know, if there's a global pandemic, if there's in Japan, you know, they had the earthquake and nuclear disaster and, and Fukushima, like that stuff doesn't matter that the recovery of your health and community is going to be secondary to the profit of, of these folks. And I think people are seeing that play out in real time, and hopefully are, are getting, um, yeah, people's awareness and resistance to those narratives is building. So that was my interview with uh, Anne Orchier, an organizer with No Olympics LA, which is a campaign to stop the evil, destructive life force being that is the Olympics from swallowing up another American city. And uh, without further ado, here is my conversation with Yasha Levine. Oh, oh, oh. 
you know, it's like when I watch TV and like when people started quarantining, they were talking about how weird it was to like watch TV and see people like shaking hands and hugging and going into crowded rooms and stuff. And that's not that's not what struck me as odd. What strikes me as odd is when I'm watching something and somebody has like hopeful plans for the future. <laughs> I'm just like, how could you even, you know, think about more than like a week or two in advance? in this state like that's what strikes me as odd yeah no a lot of people especially people who are a bit you know better what better off um and are just used to having things stable and have had things stable and maybe even improving for the last 10 years you know 20 years or whatever you know with the with the last uh sort of economic collapse we all sort of like had amnesia on that you know 12 years ago i mean people thought shit was just going to end i mean i remember that quite quite vividly i mean I, you know, I thought so too. Uh, if I even you know, moved to a suburb in, in, the, in the Mojave Desert to kind of get a sense of what life was like in this sort of collapsing post uh, real estate bubble uh, life, you know. But people, have, I, mean, I, I mean, people here. I'm in LA now again. Uh, just moved back here from New York a few months ago, right before the pandemic hit. And you know, I'm in this neighborhood where it's sort of like a, a bit, a bit of a bougie neighborhood with a lot of media people who um, live here. You know, various various sectors of the media uh, world. Uh, from musicians to people, you know, who, to actors to to whatever, you know, to people who work on sets and things like that. And, you know, I get and the people who are a bit more successful or a bit more stable. I mean, you, even just briefly talking to them, some of my neighbors, it's like you really get the sense that they think it's just going to be over in like three months, you know, or like it's going to be over just as soon as they just they're going to lift restrictions pretty soon. It's going to be great. And, you know, you hear them clapping every day at 8 p.m., you know, to, to solidarity with the you know, nurses and the doctors and the and the sort of the service personnel that has is out there. And like and you get the sense it's like, yeah, you're clapping for them, but like are you what are you doing for them? You know, what are you like it's like this clap signifies the idea that we're just gotta hunker down a little bit for just a little bit more, you know, we gotta stick together and then everything's gonna be back to normal, you know? And we don't really have to do anything or change anything or uh, or like, and just thinking that this, the political status quo is all right, you know, maybe if you maybe just change Trump or something, uh, but like, it's just this, 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 um, you know, this virus has sort of exposed the fundamental, like neoliberal sort of rot and, and, and vacancy at, at every level of our, of our society, not just the federal government, but, you know, states, counties, cities. Um, I mean, the, in LA here, their the lack of response to the pandemic and to, some of the social and economic issues like homelessness and like uh, tenants' rights and things like that that, 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 that the pandemic exposed. I mean, it's, they've done nothing about it, you know. So I don't think things are going back to normal for a lot of people, you know, um, just on the state in, 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 in the shape of, you know, the shape of what our government looks like even and, and how much support it gives, you know, it's going to be cut. And, but that's just, just, a, that's just sort of a, a small portion of what's going to be different. I mean... I don't know. Like, yeah, I mean, you know, I mean, just about, you know, like so much of our, again, like so much of our economy and people, you know, like, I don't know, like uh, some musician friends of mine and, um, you know, they talk about, they're just like, they're looking at, you know, their m- m- music and touring and, you know, things like that. The, the whole eco- the economy that underpinned it is just, it's over uh, pretty much, you know? Um, like, so there's all, yeah, so it's not going to go back to normal. Um, you know, so there's going to be some, con- you know, the tech companies are going to benefit, all the monopolies are going to benefit. Um, but like, I think it's going to re- rewire a lot of um, our lives. I'm, 
it seems like it, you know? What is, uh, I mean, and this is, this coronavirus thing is hitting Los Angeles on top of a already massive homelessness problem. You know, like, how is the homeless population being affected? Or has there been any, I don't know, you you posted one picture on your uh, your sub stack, you know, of like hand washing stations for homeless people, which is the most ridiculous thing. Well, I, look, I mean, there's a, I think there's over 50,000 homeless people in just LA city. Uh, and in the, in the County, it's, it's a lot more than, I mean, it has the biggest unhoused population in America. Uh, that's sort of, li- you know, living on the streets. Um, it's incredible. You know, I mean, I, I so I just came back to, this, to LA just uh, like I said, and we left in 2000 and shit, when do we leave? 2014, I guess. Um, and you know, it was already bad back then and coming back now it's it's incredible every little nook and cranny every underpass uh, freeway underpass um sort of every like sh- sort of shoulder next to a freeway that is uh kind of like unused and and kind of in an out of the way spot is like is is filled with tents i mean with permanent encampments people live there permanently uh um and you know and there, uh, there's been like some, uh, some like bond measures, um, some like tax, uh, measures that, you know, like, uh, that collect money to build housing for homeless people, um, that, that sort of everyone in LA supported, uh, but like nothing's been done because nobody wants to have, have the stuff built in their neighborhoods. Um, the politics of the sort of the landowning class and the homeowning class here is extremely reactionary. They don't, they hate the, the, the homeless people. They want them to just disappear. Um, before even before the crisis even hit, um, the mayor's uh, office was working with the Trump administration uh, and d- 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 talking to uh, what's the what's the doctor guy who was uh, leading the uh, housing um, oh, uh, development Carson. office? Uh, yeah. Carson Ben Carson. You know he's the guy sort of the brain surgeon. Um, you know the housing man for the tr- for the for the, yeah, for the exactly brain surgeon the brain surgeon housing guru of the Trump administration. You know he's in t- in in talks with the the liberal you know resistance hero. Uh, uh, Gar- uh, mayor of Los Angeles, Eric Garcetti, about basically uh, g- using federal land in LA County, like on the outskirts of LA County somewhere, to build encampments for the homeless. You know, so that was the plan. The plan was to create fucking camps for them out of sight, uh, like out of mind, and that was the, the the I think they were really hoping for that before the Corona hit. I mean, it was right or leading up to this, and so. There's a couple of things that's, that have been going on in, in L.A. County. There's like a program that um, that they're, they're, they're trying to uh, take over some empty hotels um, and pay them, you know, day rates and house, uh, house uh, homeless people there for the duration of the crisis. I think to date they've like housed one fiftieth or, you know, less even, I think, of the population, maybe a thousand people or something of the of the of the entire homeless population. Uh, which numbers in the tens of thousands. In mean, the official statistics, 50,000 is probably much higher than that. Um, um, so there's like these programs in there, you know, they put in, they do these promotional videos that, that show these really, um, you know, happy people who are you know, taken off the streets and, you know, put into a pretty nice hotel room. Uh, you know, I mean, really grateful, obviously, for this, but like, it's just a tiny little thing. You know, it, it, it's not systemic and, 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 and it's only for the duration of the pandemic. And so you just have people... You know, so I live on I live in this neighborhood, Los Feliz, uh, sort of on the edge of Little Armenia, and like just down the street, uh, uh, north of Vermont Street, that that runs, um, uh, you know, a 
along my apartment. Like it's like in the morning you go, you go down there, you know, it's empty because you know no one's walking around. It's quarantine and just you know there's probably a dozen people just sleeping within, within like a, a block, sort of uh, two blocks from from me, you know. And then if you go down further, there's a whole encampment, and they're kind of just left alone. I think for the most part, you know, cops don't harass them as much. I mean, although they do, uh, if they get complaints and. Uh, and you know, yeah. So the city is like uh, distributed some hand washing stations. Uh, so you know, if you're a homeless person, you can walk up to you know, uh, you know, this thing and wash your hands. Uh, some of them, you know, I, ch- I checked were working, but a lot of them don't work or like you know, because you have to constantly refill them with water. There's not a lot of water in there. To, you know, refill them with paper towels, with soap, all this stuff. They, they do that, I think, to some degree. But then on the other hand. They um, in these spots where there's been fights with between the locals and, and, and local homeless community, like in Echo Park, where there's a park and there's been these, this, this group of uh, homeless people that have been trying to like just live in this park in, in this sort of very well organized tent city. Um, you know, the local the local homeowners have been like warring with them. Uh, and, you know, so the city, even though it, legally they it voted to keep all the public restrooms open, you know, 24 hours a day. Through the through the through the pandemic, so to to, to facilitate, um, you know, uh, hy- hygiene, hy- hygiene, right? Um, they've been locking those doors uh, because they don't. They basically they want to use you know the virus, the, the pandemic as a pretext to, you know, to make life as uncomfortable for these people as possible. Uh, because so they've been deploying this kinds of stuff, you know, in a targeted way, in a very malicious way, in 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 their ongoing fights with some problem problematic. Uh, homeless communities that are, you know, decided to live in, in kind of nicer real estate areas, you know, and not like hide themselves under under um, o- overpasses and, fr- and freeway on ramps and things like that. And so, and so it's really shitty. I mean, they haven't done sh- they haven't done anything really. I mean, they've they've housed you know one fiftieth of the population for the for the time being. Um, I doubt they're going to expand it very much. I mean, I, part of it is actually resistance from the locals. Um, I mean, this cannot be overlooked. I mean. The neoliberal nature of the government goes hand in hand with the, with the really reactionary politics of um, sort of the landowning class um, here, uh, probably everywhere, uh, you know, because these are the only people who really have political power and really exercise their political power. And so they any kind of attempt to 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 help the homeless or to put open up a homeless shelter in a community or build, you know, uh, housing for the homeless in the community or even going so far as you know, renting out a motel in a community and putting homeless people there for the duration of the epidemic meets resistance from the locals. And, and so, and, and that's not just in LA. I mean, it's in San Francisco. It's it. So, you know, all this, all these liberal cities here on the West coast, you know, their real reactionary, kind of very fascistic side comes out very, very quickly. If you're asking a community to say, Hey, you know, like open your, you know, you don't have to do anything. You don't have to do a single thing. You just have to let the you know, homeless people live, in this home, in this in this building that's being built for them, you know. Your uh, book, your uh, book, Surveillance Valley, like that gave me a really useful frame for like looking at this coronavirus thing, actually. And it's like, you know, I realized it. You know, I I understood this, but your book put it in real like kind of sharp focus for me. The idea that in the context of your book, you know, these like supposedly like insurmountable privacy problems <laughs> that like the Silicon Valley has. We're being treated like technological problems by the companies that had a financial stake in your privacy, but really they were political problems. 
I see what you mean. The saying, what you're saying is, it, they they approach it as a purely technical problem to solve, rather than it be this, this technical problem is intertwined with uh, the politics that gave rise to it, and are sort of governing the way that it this this you know this pandemic sort of uh, evolves and how we deal. Yeah, with Yeah, exactly. It. Like, um, you know, the economy is broken, so you know Trump wants everybody to go back to work, and it's like, well, make. Jeff Bezos pay his taxes and give that money to people so they don't have to go to work, you know, and ride it out. It's pretty simple. Exactly. You know, I mean, it's not going to happen. I mean, it's you tell you, it's it's um, I mean, I mean, it, it's funny. Like these viruses, they're such a they're they're kind of cool in, 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 from a if you're if you approach them you know, intellectually. Uh, I mean, it's just these kind of pathogens are are cool. You approach them from a political and a historical perspective. I mean, because they're always like it's almost like. They're like tracer chemicals or something that are shot into a body. You know, sometimes when you go to a doctor in order to trace like the blood flow and to see to, to, to see inside your body, you're given these tracer chemicals and then they're slightly radioactive. And so they can be sort of tracked. Right. Um, it's kind of like that, you know, because it's, it sort of shows the shape of a society and shows all the sh- all the forces of it. And so when you when you the virus itself is is a kind of a is a product, you know, <laughs> um, most likely is a, is a product of our hyper-industrial, hyper-globalized system where, like, everything is just, you know, the natural environment is just mowed down completely, you know, bulldozed, and, you know, in, in its place are built, you know, factory farms, um, monocrops, you know, for to grow to grow kind of this industrial, to support this industrial agriculture and this industrialized global system that we have. And so the very nature of the fact that this bat virus, you know, somehow was able to jump from a bat to I don't know to some other uh, potentially uh, host to you know maybe a pig or something to to us you know again the, the details of this are still very murky, but it's pretty clear that a lot of these pandemics that are have been occurring I mean mo- most of the big of the of the big um, sort of viral outbreaks are can be traced back to you know basically imperialism and capitalism and sort of this hyper industrial capitalism we we live in uh, basically there's a destruction of natural habitats. The, the destroying of these sort of natural f- barriers and firewalls that uh, isolate species and, and 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 that have evolved over 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 millennia and you know bring these bring these bring these creatures back you know closer to us or we come closer to them and 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 thus like sort of you know they enter into our society you know into into, into human civilization whether it's through industrial uh, you know uh, like hog farming or whatever these things are like incubated and basically then like enter enter the the human world and then once, as they flow through, they reveal all the weaknesses and they reveal all the how kind of power works. And it's, so it's it's kind of so it's very it's like almost it's very it makes society more transparent. And so you have this a government that is, you know, not just not like not not just not ready, but even when you know they have several months to get shit going and to get things going, like they are actually like structurally unable to do anything. You know, so it's like it's like a. It's incredible, you know. It's incredible to watch. Um, it's a, uh, it's the total outsourcing of of political power to private um, interests, you know. Um, it just it, so this virus to me is like I, I'm just I'm 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 quite quite honest. I'm like, I mean, I've been reporting on the power of the oligarchy in you know in America ever since I came back to the states and became a journalist here. You know, right right around actually the real estate collapse uh, twelve years ago and. Um, and so I'm, but I'm even taken by surprise by the the sheer uh, emptiness of our um, government institutions on every level, and how completely they've been hollowed out. Yeah, and um, 
you know, there there was a point, I think it was like one of the first coronavirus task force meetings where Fauci was talking about like what they're going to have to do to um, get a hold on this virus. And he basically said, these are almost the exact words, like the system isn't made to handle a, a crisis like this. So, you know, we have to figure out how to incentivize private companies to come in and, you know, help us sort this out. Like he was literally saying in America, unless somebody's making money off something, we can't have it happen. So we got to figure out who's going to, you know, get rich off of this, which I, it was mind blowing to me. I just thought it was crazy. And that's like, and that's not even taken, that's not even taken as an, as a scandalous statement or as a, as a, as a shocking statement. It just, uh, you know, I mean, this is just sort of people just, Assume that's just how things work and how they should work. Um, no, it's crazy. I mean, like you know, to the point where it's like it's just it's it's just <laughs> I don't know. It's just I'm sitting here, you know, kind of overwhelmed by you know we're all sitting in our in our in our like command and control centers, right? We're like with our you know able to see all the you know information around the world, you know, happening in real time and it's being beamed into our into our brains. It's, so it's overwhelming. Like I said, you know, this this virus is like a tracer, uh, it's like a tracer chemical or a tracer agent that just you know it's shot into our body, uh, politic, and like it just kind of shows 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 its systemic nature, the, how the systems operate. And um, I mean, obviously, you know, you you, you kind of knew, you know, and I knew, and anyone who critically has looked at our, our society for the last few decades has known that, like, you know, the, the, how how completely hollowed out is is become. But it's it's been shocking to see this uh, happen in real time. Yeah. And nobody knows anything else, it seems. So it's not alarming, you know, like um, like Cuomo the other day talking about how they're going to use this virus as an opportunity to, to recreate education in New York, you know, involve, yes. you know, meaning with, with, Microsoft, with, exactly. with Microsoft. And, you know, I've, <laughs> you know, I've been yeah. reading for years about like, you know, like these Gates Foundation in initiatives in Africa where they're, you know, like giving everybody computers, but it's all Microsoft computing and like they're creating new Microsoft customers and all the old systems that they've been using that have been working really well have to go. And all these problems with the Gates Foundation, like bullying its way through the different nonprofit, you know, aspects of the nonprofit sector. And, um, and now it's coming to New York and it's coming to the United States, which is like third world America, essentially. I mean, yeah, look, the empire always comes home, right? I mean, it always comes home. I mean, it's, 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 it's always, there's always the, it's just, it's almost like it's, it's a cliche at, at this point, you know, um, you know, the blowback, uh, in, in all, in all these various different manifestations. Um, but, you know, things that you, that's why, the, that's why it's weird, you know, that, that, uh, a big part of, um, a big part of sort of the new left, you know, especially like the, kind of the Bernie Sanders left, the, the new DSA left, and you know, kind of the Jacobin left. I mean, I'm not not to say they're not anti-imperialist. Uh, I mean, I think they are, but there is a big sort of downgrading of the sort of imp imperialist focus that has existed on the left for for for, for as long as it really existed. Um, I mean, my is my my sense of it, you know, and because and because empire, the empire and focus on the empire is really important because. The empire isn't just something that happens overseas. I mean, it's because the same forces that are in power in your, in, domestically in our society are the ones who are doing this shit overseas, you know. Uh, and, and eventually that comes home you, so, sooner than later, you know. Um, and it comes home sometimes in piecemeal. People don't think about it. And people, people don't realize it. But but in, on some level, yeah, this all this sort of um, 
I mean, I, I, again, there's so much to investigate and there's not enough journalists to do this anymore, especially out here on the West Coast where there's journalism is basically non-existent. Um, like, I know that a couple of people have been sending me information about how San Francisco is now contracting with this, um, is, is, is trying to get this contact tracing initiative off the ground um, and, and with this digital platform. And one of the, and one of the, the company that is, is, they have contracted with is actually funded by USAID, and is normally and is normally done work in again like you know in um, in foreign countries and in sort of poorer countries doing various kinds of strange like health you know surveillance initiatives and um, I mean it, it, it's like one of these almost like a, something that Pierre Pierre Omidyar would fund with these kind of digital surveillance digital counterinsurgency digital kind of um, um, sort of imperial management uh, platforms, you know, and now that apparently that that company is now being used, or uh, or it's, it, they're developing a solution based on the platform of this company. So it's like you have USAID's funded technology coming home, um, and again, this fits in with with the general history of of um, computer technology and the internet and all these things that are sort of based on that. You know, it was initially. Funded as a military technology, um, right? I mean, really, it in a, in a big way came out of, of the Vietnam War and the, and, 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 and the counterinsurgency efforts there. And so, um, um, I mean, in, and not just not just the internet specifically, but various technologies that are related to it. Like, for instance, um, one of the one of these early one of the first sort of digital borders that technologies that was developed was developed in, in, in for Vietnam to bug the Ho Chi Minh Trail. And to kind of provide these sensors that would alert for movement, uh, troop movement, so that they can be bombed. Uh, and in fact, I was just actually talking to the, on the phone to a guy who, who ran the bo- who ran the bombing missions on that. <laughs> um, yeah, they get the coordinates from a, from a control center, an, an IBM control center that was in Thailand. They get the coordinates, and uh, those coordinates would be based on um, sensors that would sometimes placed by hand on the Ho Chi Minh Trail by by soldiers had to infiltrate through the jungle. And place them. Sometimes they'd be dropped from the, from the air, and they'd be kind of embedded into the ground. And then, um, and then you know, they get the coordinates from the control center, and they bomb that place based on where they think there's movement. Um, but almost immediately, so like in the early '70s, already that that technology came and was used. Uh, I, th- I think it was on the Arizona border, um, uh, embedded, you know, to to monitor illegal border crossings. And uh, so that stuff. I mean, so that stuff always comes home. I mean, it all. And sometimes it comes home immediately, like within the span of a couple of years. Um, and the same thing with the internet. You know, the internet was developed to, to, to as a, you know, wasn't supposed to be deployed against uh, domestically. You know, for disturbances in America, it was supposed to be as you know the the operating system of a kind of, of a command and control system for the for the military. Um, but immediately was used to um, process surveillance data on. Uh, American uh, civil rights activists and American anti-war protesters. Uh, so, I mean, this stuff, the technology stuff always comes home, but also just the, the mentality and the ideology also comes home, which is, which is what we're seeing with so, so, you know, in all, in all these different ways um, with the virus. I mean, also as someone who's from, you know, from the Soviet Union and as someone who knows what, what, what America did to Russia in the 90s, what, what America helped do in, in, in Russia, which is to completely hollow out the state and transfer all power to you know, into private hands, into this, into this oligarchy, you almost, you can almost see it like as, as it was, it was done very quickly in the, in, in the span of, of just a, a number of years, but you can almost see that what happened in Russia in the nineties, uh, with America's help and, uh, 
and prodding and support um, America did to its own society, but on, on a slightly slower time scale. Um, on some level, it was like a dress rehearsal or something, you know, or it was like a, a trial run. The hollowing out of the, of the society is, is spectacular for me to see. Thank you for listening to Failed State Update. I am your host, Joseph L. Flatley. Be sure to uh, check me out on Twitter, at Lenny Flatley. Be sure to subscribe to the newsletter, lennyflatley.substack.com. And um, if you're not following this podcast, shame on you. I can be found on just about any podcast host out there, any podcast app out there, or you can go to my website, lennyflatley.net. Still room I left my life forever I wonder why I'm alive